Today's podcast is brought to you by Blue Canary. The bird has landed on beautiful Bainbridge Island, conveniently located at 499 Madison Avenue. ASE Master Technician Clint Ramsey brings over 15 years of experience, award-winning diagnostic skill, and a desire to reinvent the automotive repair experience. Schedule an appointment online at bluecanary.biz or call them today at 206-451-4220. I'm Maria Metzler, the Executive Director of Helpline House. The global pandemic has affected us all differently. If you or your neighbors need food assistance, mental health counseling, rental assistance, or parks and rec vouchers, please reach out. Helpline House can help in many ways. Find us on the web at helplinehouse.org. It's what we do. Neighbor helping neighbor. I got something for your mind, body, and soul. What's good, Podcastville? You found the Bystander Podcast. Today, our podcast is brought to you by Mudwater, Blue Canary, and Helpline House here on Bainbridge Island, the local food bank. Today, I have with me Christian and Rhea Kalen from Provisions Farm. How are you guys doing today? We're doing great. Doing awesome. How are you doing, Tim? I'm super excited to talk to you um, because I just came across you guys, I think on Facebook, and I recently established a new friendship in Olympia and just got the sponsorship of Mudwater recently. I was like, I got to up my mushroom game. And it seems like you guys have been doing a really cool project. Somehow found love, developed this and scaled it and uh, <laughs> got into many things like tincture and growing mushrooms and teaching classes. And I want to hear the story. I'm very interested. So uh, cool. I believe what I've read is Christian that you got excited about reading a couple of mushroom books and what, what's the expert out here in Washington state, Paul Stamets. Stamets? Yeah, I think that's, yeah, you got it. Yeah. Paul Stamets. Yeah. He, he's an interesting guy. I've listened to his talks in the past and then did you wind up working with him? Yeah. Uh, we ended up, we were, uh, Rhea and I met in Utah actually, and we, knew that we wanted to live somewhere on the West coast. Weren't sure where we we're going to go. And then, um, I really fell in love, uh, with the area working up here previously and then took a beginner seminar at Fungi Perfecti in 2001. And that's when I really latched on to the whole idea of maybe coming up here and working with Paul Stamets. And so we moved up here in 2003 in the fall of 2003 in hopes to work with Paul. And about six months later, I landed the job with him and worked with uh, Paul at Fungi from 2003 to 2007. And basically, uh, you know, long story short, we met through uh, Rhea 
basically uh, she's been a massage therapist in the area for over 15 years. And when she first started, met some farmers down in the Rochester area that had one of the largest CSA farms, community supported agriculture model of marketing. Mm -hmm. And we teamed up with them and started our own farm with about a hundred CSA members to start. So we knew that we had a market available that we could go into and we started growing shiitakes, lion's mane and oysters for uh, CSA farming. And that was in Rochester, New York? No, here in Rochester, oh. Washington, just south of Oh, Olympia. I see. I'm sorry. My, no, no, my, wife, yeah. my wife played soccer for Rochester, uh, New York. Um, okay. So she's from the Finger Lakes area and stuff like that. Yeah, I love it up there too. Yeah, it's nice. Yeah, it's beautiful. So tell me a little bit. You, you guys are close to a forest too, right? We're right off of Capitol Forest. We're about 10 acres away from Capitol Forest. And, and do you uh, forage there? We do. We could actually forage. We foraged over 200 pounds of chanterelles right in our backyard. We're on five acres here. Nice. And uh, a lot of trees here, the Doug firs have, you know, 40, 50 year old Doug firs on the property. So they have that symbiotic relationship with the chanterelles and on good seasons when there's lots of rain, we can really load up right here on our property. It's kind of nice to be so close to the forest. Yeah. And chanterelles are um, great mushrooms. I, I have one recipe called as a chanterelle tart that a, with a flaky crust that I just love goat cheese in it and stuff like that. And mm. So delicious. Um, but chanterelles there, I'm near um, some protected forests here on Bay Ridge Island as well. We have the grand forest, which is over 400 acres that are just saved for the people right in the middle of the Island for trail walking and stuff. And we have quite a few chanterelles in this area as well. Um, nice, yeah. I, it's a multi-million dollar industry here for wild picking. You know, it's hey, amazing how many chanterelles come out of Washington alone. My neighbor kind of got me into foraging, um, and I've only gone a couple times. But, and he had a pocket knife with like a, a brush on the other side of it, you know, so you just slice it at the, at the base and brush off the dirt. And then you take it to this really fancy restaurant and trade it for meals, both nice. at the golf course and at the Harbor House public um, pub. Yeah, but, they're a hot item if you know where to find them. Yeah, it's amazing how much the price varies, though. That's what kind of got me. Like, one one day he'd get ten dollars from a chef per pound, and then other days it'd be sixty, and it varied so much depending on the season. And tell me right. some of the conditions that a chanterelle needs. Uh, well, chanterelles are a mycorrhizal. Ray, you want to answer? You know okay. more. Okay. <laughs> I'm talking a lot here. But, uh, chanterelles are, yeah, they're a mycorrhizal variety that have the symbiotic relationship with the Doug firs, hemlocks, a lot of the evergreens up here, and some of the brush nearby those firs to help out. So soil uh, conditions and rain, basically. So we just live in an amazing region with a diversity of forest life. And you'll only find them generally around 15 to 45-year-old Doug firs or older, but, and then the conditions have to be right through like September and October. If we don't get enough rain, you know, we've seen those prices go up considerably when people are expecting thousands of pounds in September and October, and there's only hundreds of pounds. So the prices will fluctuate drastically because of the seasonal um, availability of those mushrooms. So, and tell yeah. Tell me all the different mediums, different mushrooms need, not all of them, but a few of them, the ones that we would recognize. I know there's just 
hundreds upon hundreds of mushrooms and uh a lot of people don't get past cremini's (laughs) so i know that certain mushrooms are produced on trees some are in the in the ground Mm -hmm. some are in the ocean some have uh need to be from burn forest areas Uh, i believe that's morels that like to grow in that condition chanterelles usually grow in the fall when it's it rains and then some sunshine immediately comes after correct yeah, they like a uh, like a rain and then a warming. Mm-hmm. Um, not what kind of... They're in they're in the forest generally without a lot of direct sunlight. Most mushrooms don't want direct sunlight, but they like that back and forth of wet to uh, warm, and then cold temperatures fluctuate. You know, we'll fluctuate thirty degrees sometimes from morning to night in the fall. And wow. Mushrooms a lot of times like that. That kind of initiates them into fruiting, and then the warmth brings them out even more to expand. So yeah, there's all kinds of different substrates like the cremini that you were talking about. That's the button mushroom. And ironically, all the buttons are basically the same. You know, you have the portobello, which is the overmature cremini, which is the brown button mushroom. And then the white buttons are the same. They could be growing portobellos that are white as well. They just choose to use the brown button. So it's a way for them to market their, their, their mushrooms in a way that made them a little different, even though they were all basically the same. And they like manures, so they're a coprotrophic mushroom. Mm -hmm. Uh, Manure lovers, there's other types of manure lovers out there. Uh, Grass, there's grass-loving species. You'll find them in grass, generally. There's also the wood lovers, they're the saprotrophs. They like dead or decaying wood. So the oysters, lion's mane, and shiitakes primarily grow on wood. People ask all the time down here in Thurston County why it stinks so bad when they go by uh, Lacey and it's the button mushroom farm there and they're composting chicken manure and straw together with gypsum, pasteurizing that and then What's putting gypsum? it into their houses. So uh, calcium carbonate. And how do you it's drive a, that? It's a mind. It's a, yeah, it's mined as a mineral. It's in the cement industry or drywall as well. It's so- just... It helps um, keep the pH right and breaks up the, the the moisture content so it doesn't get clumpy. So and yeah, those do, are the basic three substrates that people use to cultivate mushrooms. And you have gardens and then you have foraging side and then you have spore development all going on, <laughs> correct? Spores are, yeah, that's a, a common question. How do we start the cultures, basically? What do we start with? The spore is your basic seed of the mushroom, but there's so much genetic variability in the spore that we take a direct tissue culture out of a fresh mushroom. So you can literally just peel a mushroom open, take a scalpel, take a little piece out of the very inner part that hasn't touched the outside air and put it in a Petri dish. You've now taken a clone of that direct mushroom you want to grow. takes a series of um, making sure that is a really aggressive line that you picked out. And then you'll eventually get a fruiting variety off your culture. And we keep those in test tubes for long-term storage and refrigeration for about five years. And every year we can go back to that test tube, take a little slice off that first generation that was right off the, the actual mushroom, put that in a Petri dish, and then grow that out to, to go onto grain. The grain goes onto the other wood substrates, and then that produces a mushroom. So it's a, a three-step process generally to start from culture to the final sawdust to the final mushroom 
So you got an area that's petri dishes and your pipetting and slicing cells up and stuff like that? Or like Really similar, yeah. Basic uh, sterile laboratory where we do all of our work in a sterile lab because molds and bacteria grow so fast. Our, our fungi need six to seven days to really leap off and be able to protect themselves from those contaminations. So we have to work in a sterile environment. And that's kind of what keeps people from doing it. But there's other ways through our workshops. You know, you don't have to have a laboratory necessarily. You can buy spawn from people, uh, producers, and then have an outdoor setup or a less sterile environment to grow mushrooms from there as well. All right, Kaylin, I'm going to bring you in because you're sitting there. Rhea. 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 I'm, yeah, that's okay. You got the last name. I had an art, there, I had an art teacher that I had an art teacher that always thought my last name should be my first name. So. <laughs> yeah, so you get it. I'm, I apologize. Um, oh, that's great. What kind of mediums and where do you get them? Like your uh, compost, your manure, your sawdust, stuff like that. Um, I had a friend that thought that he could take all the coffee grounds from Starbucks and make oyster mushrooms. And he yeah, wrote an article about it, but he never followed through. It, one, is that factually true that you can do that with coffee grounds? And, and secondly, where are some of your supply chain coming from for the ingredients that you have to grow the mushrooms in? Yeah, we're really lucky in our in living in Thurston County. There's a lot of agricultural uh, waste products that happen here. For, so uh, we use organic sawdust to grow a lot of mushroom, our wood-loving mushrooms. So it's already mimicking the decaying process. And um, we, we have access to manure if we need that source with um, dairy farmers that are around that oh, love yeah. it for you to come up and pick up waste that they have to deal with anyways. So, you know, it helps them out as well. And our agar is sourced, um, you know, it's a seaweed based product and you can get that online. And as far as those medias go, there's all kinds of recipes to make media to grow different mushrooms in, you know, there's selectability and, but those are our main sources of how we get our substrates. Um, and grain and, as well. And grain. Yeah, yeah. We have some local grain growers. So our, our grains that we grow on are usually sourced fairly close to our farm. And if you, if you don't have a farm nearby, you can find a food co-op or potentially um, small urban farming stores can help out with those things. Um, we've seen that. And coffee grounds, yeah, you can grow great oyster crops on coffee grounds. And that is definitely some got a coffee shop that'll be willing to give you their grounds. It's definitely a fun way to use them as a as recycling a waste product to grow food at home. Awesome. Yeah. So do you use coffee grounds yourself at all? We don't. Um, we don't. In workshops, we've shown the process of it. Yeah. But as far as the scale of it for us, it just doesn't make sense because we're using so much that Starbucks can't, we can't recycle enough grounds. So we, we mm. leave that industry for somebody else. And lots of people take it for their gardens and mix it in their compost. Coffee grounds I do. It's they're great awesome. for tomatoes. Yeah. So they have a big uh, bag each day with the filters in the grounds that you can take for recomposting here on the island from all the coffee shops. So, yeah, we're starting to see that a lot more. So even here in Olympia, we see it when we're out. Well, in the past, when we've been out and traveling, it's fun to pop in a coffee shop and you're like, oh, they're giving their grounds away. You know, it's just super neat. So 
Um, so having an organic farm, what are your stand, what's your family stance on GMO? That's a good question. That's a good yeah. question. We're not technically <laughs> certified organic. We're in the process of being certified organic, but we had a close relationship with our, our customers being at the farmer's market, being through CSA. Mm -hmm. And we didn't feel like we needed to certify ourselves because we could show them yeah. right off the bat what we were doing. So we chose not to. There's a lot of farms out there that are like that. Mm -hmm. But uh, GMO too is a whole nother ball of wax, you know? Um, ethically and philosophically, GMO is, since we started agriculture as a civilization, we, that's basically GMO in our opinion. Right. But, um, we, we started agriculture cultivating and manipulating nature to be producers for us so the yields would be higher. So there's different ways to look at it. And you can, I think, I think after taking multiple genetics classes at a university level, going on to get my doctorate, hopefully learning about genetically modified organisms isn't so much the problem because we couldn't really um, do things with crops that in places like Africa, that's extremely drought ridden, we can you know, tech out crops that could actually feed a nation of people who are starving. Um, the hard part is when we get um, agricultural companies in it uploading, you know, their uh, pesticides. pesticides and fungicides and chemicals that don't belong in a crop that um, are devastating some of soil lands and agricultural, you know, uniqueness is the diversity gets lessened. So, nature mimics genetically modified how we think about it. And um, I think if we worked around maybe a bigger understanding of reducing pesticides, not creating crops that could feed a nation. Um, mm -hmm. That's kind of where I look at it of having to have been a little bit more open because I used to just be very averse to genetically modified anything. And um, when I learned about more of it on a level of, well, what are we, why are we doing this? Well, number one, we want to reduce some resource, but number two, we could really impact places. And so on a grand level to help people out. So it took a long time for me to even be able to verbalize it in those words. And um I, I, that's just kind of where I come from now. And the, there's definitely like a, a two edge to that coin for me, because one side is for me is just really horrible. And another side could be really, really amazing. So I think it's a slippery slope with GMO and it definitely needs to cultivate more mindfulness around what we're doing with it. Because if us humans are flipping the script on seeds, then I think we should be held accountable for it in better benefit instead of destructive pattern. Very well said, Rhea. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> hey, so um, I'm kind of close to Olympic uh, Forest out here. And um, there's about an hour drive, there's this little city called Chimicum. And um, I'm actually wearing this hat from the Chimicum corner store which is all locally grown. I mean, the farms are right across the street. And every Saturday they have a farmer's market, much like the island does here. But they have these incredible mushroom packs. You can either get them in large plastic bags or these trays. And they look like, 
you know, everything a baby would throw up. Uh-huh. <laughs> What's in that? Uh, well, it depends on the variety, but most of them are sawdust based. Mm-hmm. Mycelium. Um, the mycelium should look white, you know, from yeah. depending on the variety. So, yeah. Right. Shiitakes will turn brown as they age and they look really weird. They'll start to bubble out. We call it popcorning. The mycelium will get these warts on them and they turn brown. They start to have this wet exudate that they exude. And um, so it can look weird to people. You know, fungus in general is kind of a, we still have a stigma here in the U.S. about fungi in general, but we're definitely wanting to learn more. And um, it's mostly just white fungus for the most part. And that's a good thing, but it's hard. It, it takes a trained eye to see bacteria or smell it and the other contaminations that people would think that that's probably what it is and not the fungus. So and it's funny. And also, and that reminds me of something that um, a lot of people ask about, um, could the mushroom, other mushrooms grow out of that same thing? And generally not. Once that particular mushroom grows through that substrate, it's only going to fruit that mushroom. So that's another thing to keep in mind as consumers. In a, in a cultivated bag. In a cultivated bag as well. If you're doing a cultivated log with a log culture, plugging using dowels, going to grow shiitake, which is mostly common. Um, sometimes it'll fruit turkey tail because it's not that you plugged it with turkey tail, just the turkey tail beat out the shiitake in a natural setting and turkey tails a uh, variety that's around a lot in the spored world out in nature so and they're edible yeah them they are more like tea you know you might want to make tea out of them you're um, not so much gonna cook them and just eat them that way it's super medicinal um, their medicinal qualities are pretty off the chart for a lot of cancers and tumor reducing and Interesting. Yeah, there's a lot of Chinese medicine based around um, turkey tail and lots of oncologists now recommending it to anyone with breast cancer. So it's oh, that's good to know. Yeah, it's definitely out there. So it's a wonderful species. So sometimes you see that when you are trying to uh, force something to grow something, you know, the natural world can overtake it a little bit. But Mm -hmm. nobody beats Mother Nature. Yeah. And so let's pivot to, um, uh, so I'm trying to think about how my mushroom mind went, but uh, I started taking reishi tincture for my pancreas and overall health. Um, What are some of the health benefits from certain varieties of mushrooms that you would suggest for the listeners that you should incorporate in your, not diet, but your eating habits? I don't like that word diet. I fluctuate myself. <laughs> yeah. You should just add all mushrooms in your diet. Yeah. Like whatever, if you have an ailment, you know, we have Google today. You can Google most mushroom layman's names like lion's mane or shiitake and put mm-hmm. in medicinal qualities. And most of that information that pops up isn't falsified because there's a lot of backing behind it. Um I would say if anybody's concerned about their whole food nutrition of adding whatever mushroom you like, just eat it because there will be things like lion's mane has brain qualities and neural growth issues and decreases nerve pain for some people. 
shiitake is a great blood cleaner. So if you have cholesterol issues, you're dealing with um, maybe some sodium regulation problems too around your heart, you can add shiitakes into your diet and your food intake, and it can actually help reduce and quell those, some of those problems. Oyster mushrooms, um, also another fabulous mushroom for all, kind of just all general things from things I've read about nail growth to, you know, just feeling radiant like they look. So, um, so uh, yes. go ahead. Um, so some, like I have kind of a top 10, I think. Uh, <laughs> like, I think uh, Lion's Mane, for sure. That's been super popular online. Okay, before, before we get further in your top 10, Lion mane, lion's mane is a beautiful mushroom in my mind. And I've just gorgeous. found it out because it's in my mud water. Um, I see it in the grocery store now. I recognize it. How do I cook it? Or do I cook it? How do I use? I know certain mushrooms are better in certain situations. Yeah. Uh, lion's like morels, I want to go to a French restaurant and have them, you know, reduced and beautified. Or chinis. Yeah. Yeah. Lion's men are usually in a ball, like a baseball or a softball shape. I like to slice them into wafers, or you can actually dice them like an onion, get them into little cubes. There's little icicle kind of teeth on the outside. It's yeah. a tooth fungus. So those will kind of just break off and go into the rest of the meal. But they have a kind of a crab or a lobster-like texture to them. And they they really soak up the flavors that you add to them, but they have a very nice mild mushroom earthy flavor as well. So um, I'm off dairy myself. Butter makes anything taste good, basically, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I, I like, you know, coconut oil and yeah. cooking them in a coconut oil, maybe getting them crispy. You could barbecue them, basically. You could just wafer <laughs> them into nice little, you know, half inch or one inch wafers Steak, and yeah. barbecue them, marinate them before you barbecue them and whatever you like. Yeah, I like to grill the portobellos. Yeah. I don't I don't cut my heresium when I barbecue them. I just put those suckers on in their puffball state and just roll them around and get them that hey man that is the best way i we've grown lion's mane for a while now and i think i started barbecuing that way about a year and a half ago so it's mm. definitely my new favorite way to eat lion's mane is this slow and low on the grill like you're doing ribs or something just nice yeah <laughs> i'm currently fasting right now so um you're getting me hungry oh yeah <laughs> sounds good but uh yeah i have mct oil in the the mud water and that's a i believe a coconut derivative that uh kind of sweetens yeah. it a bit but i'm off dairy as well except i'm not completely off anything i'm i'm what i i used to label myself as a pescatarian but now i'm a flexitarian i'm flexible yeah. i'll eat a cow i'll drink a glass of chocolate milk here and there you know um but for the most part i stay away from it and uh, enjoy the coconut almond milk but then you have this whole problem of almond harvesting and how much water it takes. And, you know, once one superfood goes off, you know, yeah. it just gets depleted and it causes a lot of wrecks in a lot of ways. Definitely. Uh, oat milk to... is my new favorite. Like oat milk, oats are easy to raise. Yeah. That's good for your body as well. So back to your top 10, lion's mane. 
<laughs> Number 10. Yeah. Oh, well, um, medicinally, you know, you can find these in all sorts of different uh, products. So lion's mane, reishi, of course, there's so many different reishis. There's wild now, reishis that are here in the, the wild. Is reishi like the half moon that's attached to a tree? Yeah, the, really the, hard. the conch mushrooms or the shelf mushrooms. Yeah. How do you harvest those? You can literally just take the shelf and just peel it off the bark of the tree. The tree's already dying or, or um, on its way out. And mm. there's certain varieties that you want to be um, aware of. There's some. There's a red-listed variety called a garicon. These are all polypore mushrooms, the, the woody conch mushrooms that you find on the sides of dead trees, usually dug firs or evergreens. And the agaricon is on my top 10 as well. It's um, instead of the fruit body, we grow mycelium, the, the fungus, the white stuff, and then grow that on a substrate and then tincture that. Or you can grind it up into a powder and, and put that into whatever. Mm -hmm. So there's ways that you can grow the polypore just for the mycelium to then extract the, the, the medicine instead of it being from the fruit body, which is too woody to eat, basically. So reishis are too woody to eat as well. So it's generally uh, hot water extraction or they grow the mycelium out on a grain and they'll make a powder out of that later on and put that into products. So no wonder I usually get it in liquid form. Good. To yeah. Know. Yeah. What else you got for um, me there, Christian? Yeah. The polypores are amazing. Pretty much all polypores I would highly recommend as a medicinal. There's the turkey tail, agaricon, reishi, um chaga chaga's in the mud water i like that chaga's in the mud water what does a My, chaga my, mushroom look like i have yet to see what that looks like or look it up chaga, yeah it's a parasitic fungi that grows usually in canada alaska and the northeast because it's on birch trees mm. and it's like a uh, like a black cancerous growth coming off the birch trees with a yellow core golden core it's meant it's to also it's also one of those superfoods that's being overharvested, in my opinion, but there's quite a bit out there. What's happening is the outer sporulation isn't there anymore because people cut it off the tree. It's still in the tree and it'll keep growing from that tree for up to 30 or 40 years. Mm -hmm. But as we harvest it, there's less and less sporulation happening. And so it's not as diverse. Let's talk about that for a second. When... I go to harvest a mushroom that I forage. Is it important for me to shake it, leave the root in there, cut it at a certain point or pluck it? It's different for every species, really. There's certain species that you pluck right out of the ground. The porcinis generally are, are like that. The matsutakis, the chanterelles people will cut because there's little tiny mushrooms usually attached to that bigger mushroom. If you were to pull a whole piece out, you're not guaranteed any more mushrooms from that spot. So uh, seasoned season pickers will always carry a knife with them so that they can cut the chanterelles out rather than pick them out. Um, All right. Good job, Mike Johnson out there with your pocket knife getting those chanterelles for us. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Hey, um, so yeah, just knowing, knowing your mushrooms and which ones. It's pretty basic like that, you yeah. know. What kind of roadblocks did you have in your supply chain during the pandemic you know um it, the csa that i is that's near my garden is uh there's a refrigerator in a barn and a couple crates and it wouldn't have disrupted 
the supply chain whatsoever because you just go in the barn grab your grab your bundle of vegetables or whatnot and then go you're not going to interact with any people what kind of issues did you guys have over the last year and a half or so well we have actually changed our whole farm over the last year we've kind of taken a break from csa farming and farmers markets to renegotiate the future of our farm to be in the nutraceutical market actually where we want to produce medicine we've been producing food for 15 years and we've always known that medicine is super important too mm -hmm. and we're we're launching the company now to produce nutraceuticals basically so that's our new thing um, but as far as supply chains, I know that Sawdust was actually having a little issue there. People up in Bellingham, or not Bellingham, but up north of Seattle were actually coming down here to get Sawdust for their operations because the mills were working a little differently. Um, I know that there has been a little bit of higher prices happening because of shipping and, and weather-related things that are happening as well, so... Yeah, the pandemic has definitely caused a little snafu in different industries that cause ripples in other industries, basically. But I think for the most part, farming has continued to be fairly strong. You know, there's people it's not, it's can that big and, industrial farming. Yeah, yeah exactly. Like the poultry business, you know, and the dairy. I wouldn't want yeah, to be lo in that local right farming now. that's that's smaller for sure hasn't been hurt quite like the industrial. Yeah, I think you have some thoughts. I feel your yeah, head I do. I was going to say, my, our our companion farmers that we farmed with, where we pushed our mushrooms through for a decade, they said last year when everything was in the height of the pandemic, um, they couldn't provide enough food for the people who kept calling and emailing trying to get a new subscription to their farm. They oversold they they usually always overgrow which is nice for reasons um and they do a lot of gleaner work and last year they couldn't allow the gleaners to come to provide food for the food bank because their subscription overflowed beyond what they had projected for so in some ways their small farm um you know got boosted because it did drive people to start thinking differently of where am I going to get really good food right now as we saw things in the grocery store really change and um, grow your own kits people were yeah. at home and I know grow your own uh, mushroom kits were huge over the last year and you in, guys in sell those right yeah we have in the past yeah we didn't take advantage of the pandemic no. situation like other farms did. We made a lot of tincture during the pandemic yeah. is what we did. And I think the only snafu that I can remember we really ran into was a lack of running it out of alcohol to extract with. Yeah. And I that was uh, the pinch for us when I think about yeah. what we did make or what became a shortage in supply was, you know, there was no, there was no extracting alcohols. So mm. In that moment, Christian and I looked at each other and went, well, let's start working with how do we get away from extracting alcohols? And we know all these other ideas. And so it kind of just gave us some space to think about using water differently and hot and cold extracts and um, looking at even the industry of ethanol extractions into different sources of how do we make nutraceutical products that are even going to lessen the burden on our 
systems. And so that's, that's actually where we're all at right now. So just super exciting. So, um, yeah, I think the pandemic, the one thing that I'm going to get out of it is, you know, a sense of what's important, what's not. And, you know, with our relationship with China and human rights and importing and exporting, it's, it's more important than ever to support the community that you're in and buy and shop and grow where you live, you know. Oh man, know your farmer, know your food. Yeah, know that footprint. I, I hope to see that ripple effect continue on as the world starts to return to something and we have an opportunity to make it what we want, so. Yeah, I mean, that was my goal last year um, before the pandemic was sourcing. Just one word, sourcing. Um, do I know where this came from? Is it child labor? Is it slave labor? Is it human rights violations? Is it non-GMO, GMO, who cares, whatever, but I should be able to know that. It's one of my biggest pet peeves is farm salmon. When I go to a restaurant, I should know where to trace where that fish came from, no matter what the fish is. And there's a lot of disguise in restaurateurs you know, charging a lot for some farm salmon. But then I have a, a friend who um, is a kelp farmer in Alaska in Ketchikan. He has about a, 180 acres of sea where he grows kelp on lines. And he, he uh, went out to lunch with me. He's like, hey, about 80% of the restaurant industry uses farmed salmon. And then we had um, some issues out here. We had Atlantic salmon being grown in pens on the, in the tribal area. And then the pin broke out. And I also feel like the fish are stuck, you know, in a kind of a underground box of their own feces, you know, and <laughs> they're just swimming around in that. And it's just constant and uh, it's not natural in any way. So I'd, I'd like to see that I can trace that fish. And proper fish is out here, a fish and chip place. And, you know, you can know exactly what water what day that fish was caught you know and it's up there every day like hey caught this cod at so-and-so you know got it through the pike place market at 6 a.m this morning it's on your plate at 11. You know, i like that that's cool i like that too i'd spend my money there any day of the week <laughs> yeah <laughs> i think there's a, a push in grocery stores as well to have barcodes that have source um, digital information built into the product in the future. We'll see that more and more in grocery stores. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I like that they're, they're changing this one product that I invested in called genius juice, which is a whole coconut product where they use the husks for uh, natural energy. They blend the meat of the coconut with the, the water and add things that are like anti-inflammatories like turmeric or cinnamon or um, the one that I like is cacao and it's just three ingredients and the whole process is earth friendly. So I'm drinking it every day. I put some money in it and I'm, I'm proud when I hold that bottle around. It's kind of like, I'm, you see the label there? Yeah, there's a label. But <laughs> <laughs> you should be drinking. Uh, so how many varieties would you say that you guys have grown and how many have you kind of settled in on as what you want to do? 
Yeah, I didn't ever finish my top ten. It was uh, <laughs> my, I was on a, I was on a maitake. Maitake is another amazing mushroom, both culinary and medicinal. Yeah. Helps killer T cell boost, uh, white blood cell count. Wow, and it's just an amazingly fabulous mushroom. It's super meaty and the textures amazing. We've got a dog knocking at the door. I have a couple too, doing the same thing. So they're squeak toy. It's driving me yeah. nuts. Um. Cordyceps is another amazing mushroom. Um, Tell me about that, because that cordyceps is in the mud water as well. Yeah, there's two different varieties that you'll find on on market. There's the sinensis, which is the the fruit body of sinensis cordyceps is actually in a caterpillar larvae grown in the Tibetan region in China, and it is also over harvested. It's one of the most expensive mushrooms next to truffles. And it's because of its scarcity now and the way they have to harvest it. Most medicinal products online will have sinensis in the mycelial form instead of it being the fruit body form. That's why the, it doesn't cost so much. And then there's the militaris, which is kind of a coral colored mushroom. And it, it looks like a little piece oh, yeah, of yeah, coral, yeah. basically. Yeah. And they're growing the, the fruit bodies of that, the mushroom and then powderizing that or putting it into supplements. So those are amazing adaptogenic mushroom. Like it, it helps athletes recover. Um, it also helps oxygenate the blood. So you have uh, more stamina runners and other athletes or just people that need more energy without caffeine and other products will find benefit with cordyceps for sure. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. Well drinking this mud water that I have a sustainability in my body now. I've been mm -hmm. off coffee for two months and it's not the high, low crash, give me a shot in the arm type of thing. Even though I wasn't a heavy coffee drinker at all, uh, yeah. I like the sustainability of the mushroom tea in the morning. Yeah, cordyceps is one of those mushrooms that you, I can feel it, you know, after it's a slow medicine. So yeah. you're not going to feel yeah, yeah. it instantly, but... Yeah, over two weeks of taking it consistently. If you're not a morning person, you'll see the difference. Like, yeah. <laughs> definitely. Yeah. yeah, it definitely works. So you and, said truffles. I didn't, didn't, um, I'm sorry if I cut you off there and you can finish your thought. If no, you no, like. no, it's fine. So I don't really think of truffles uh, as, a, as a mushroom. I do think of it as something that I don't need on my tater tots or French fries at a restaurant. And yeah. I always see this uh, truffle oil on this, truffles on that, you know, and then I was kind of interested that the pigs dug it up. But I, until right now, I didn't put two and two together that a truffle is a mushroom. What yeah. kind of health benefits does a truffle have? And is that super over harvest? Because I see truffle oil on just about everything yeah they're they harvest them here in the wild right here in our backyard we just found one the other day when we were taking a greenhouse out of the ground and one popped right out of the ground they're a symbiotic mushroom with the duck firs and other trees like hazelnuts so people have inoculated hazelnut filbert trees root systems and then planted those and after eight years they're going to have truffles supposedly so there is a cultivation and a wild uh, variety that's being grown <laughs> there's black and white varieties some people think the european italian truffles are are better or have that consistency and the, the the fragrance and the flavors that they're looking for 
Mm -hmm. uh, so they'll be a little more expensive than the, the U.S. grown uh, West Coast truffles. As far as medicinal qualities, I'm not so sure. I'm sure there are some, but it's more for a culinary benefit where you're just at the end of whatever you're cooking and just shave a little bit of truffle over the top. You're not really cooking the truffle. Mm -hmm. You have to cure the truffles as well after you pick them. There is a little bit of over harvesting as far as the way they harvest. If they're not using pigs or dogs that can smell them, people will go in with rakes and rake out huge swaths of forest floor in order to uh, expose the roots and see the truffles easier. So that can be destructive as far as mm. the ethical part of harvesting them out in the wild. But tell, tell me if you have any knowledge about mushrooms in the ocean, because I heard the largest mushroom is at the bottom of the ocean, basically. And you talk a lot about symbolicism and how perhaps, you know, the mushrooms and plants and trees all work in communication, um, fight disease, and try to cut off the disease by the one plant saying, I will pull back my root system away from you and, and die peacefully in, in mother nature. And uh, you guys can move on with your lives. Um, being a, a vegan or a vegetarian and trying to wrap your head around broccoli crying or <laughs> something when you <laughs> harvest it like yeah. killing an animal that's yeah. a whole another set of problems but i i'm fascinated by yeah. the connection of mushrooms and other plants and i was wondering if you knew anything about the connection of mushrooms in the ocean because we're surrounded by the pacific ocean and yeah right and this is where life came from basically you know in the early beginnings of the earth we we see that the algaes and the fungi came out of the water and demineralized rock formations to make dirt, to form more plant life on earth. So these were the early, uh, the early organisms that helped life evolve onto the, the land. So yeah, there's, I met a mycologist at the International Medicinal Mushroom Conference in 2004 that went down in submarines just to do research on suboceanic fungi, which is just an amazing thing. You know, you don't really think about yeah. it that way, but that's where it all started. Yeah, and I think, I don't know enough actually, it's not my specialty, but it's pretty amazing work that they're doing. And we really, it's gonna take our grandkids and their kids to figure out all the different mushrooms that we have here in this world, both in the ocean and on land. Uh, there's millions of species basically. So we don't know them all and it's gonna take multiple generations yeah. to find them. It'll take a couple of Jacques Cousteau's to gather that stuff, right? Yeah, it's exciting yeah. work. There's definitely um, cataloging of, of aquatic fungi that's happening. You know, I, I don't think it, it's happened as fast as terrestrial stuff because we live on land. So, mm -hmm. but there is a whole new birth into the science world of like, let's go figure out what they're doing. Um, the oxygenation factor of our planet, we think to, you know, blue green algae kind of ancient stromatolites, you know, that came out from the water and started absorbing the CO2 and making oxygen happen. So if we didn't have fungi in a eukaryotic split back in, you know, time frame, time mass, 
um, we wouldn't know this earth as we know it today and probably not exist. So the aquatic species, I think we're going to learn a bunch about because there's still a lot of unknowns there. And that's some exciting new work that's coming out. Yeah, it sounds exciting and very fascinating to learn about. Rhea, how do you feel about um, the future of farm to table? Oh, yeah. Restaurants. Yeah, I think I, I don't think we've seen I think we're just scratching the surface. So I think it's going to definitely, especially in America, as it infiltrates more into the center of our country. Um, like I think our coastals do a little bit better with farm to table awareness. Um, and I'm mm -hmm. excited to see it like move into middle America where there's a lot of farms. And even though some are big, it, they should still be putting food into their local community. And so much is stored in silage and storage of what we're doing and that goes to waste. So I'm hoping as, you know, cycles change that we start to see more farm to table and from like nose to tail yeah. work, you know, that's where I'm really excited about every time I meet younger people who are interested in growing, not just their own plants, but you know, their own animals, because I think if you're going to be a flexible eater, you should definitely raise your own animals at least once in your life and, and go through that process. Um, I know every time I buy, you know, an animal product in a grocery store, I definitely give a lot more thanks to the opportunity to, to buy it so conveniently. And I think, I think that shift of the idea of convenience of our food, um, uh, we're so removed from it and, yeah. and we're so lucky in this country. So I'm, I'm looking forward to more farm to table and slow food. I love the idea of slow food. So, um, define slow food for me. So slow food is that idea of like the restaurants, knowing the farmers slowing it down out of mass uh, production of big agricultural and the slow food movement's been around for a little while now. So it is out there and on, online and in the media somewhat. Um, but it's definitely the idea of, you know, removing it from the big corporates into the local communities. Um, even if it's big farms having small, helping smaller farms, mm -hmm. I'm definitely into seeing some of those transitions happen. Yeah. I have a, a friend from, uh, he has a business uh, whiskey distillery in Australia. And we were talking about his relationship with farmers and how he gets his grains and hops and then turns around and, and after they've been deshelled and go through the process, he gives that to pig farmers. So right. now instead of throwing away waste, it's going on another circle of life and how important it is and how he just respects how it's a circular, um, what would you call that uh, idea of, you know, everybody helping everybody and the products returning back to, to earth in the end which uh, was kind of deep for a whiskey guy. <laughs> yeah, I think about, you know, in commune, communing, community, living in these worlds we're in today, you know, that's how we all got here was somebody helped somebody who helped somebody else who raised an animal that probably fed your family. So if we can, um, I mean, I grew up with the like reduce, reuse, recycle. I'm one of those kids. So it's yeah. like, 
yeah, if we can reduce what we're doing, we can recycle it. And then how do we reuse it? I mean, that is like the, I think kind of a, still a golden ticket to the future of um, regenerative work in our mindset, our communities of food producers, um, to the table, to people who, you know, CSA is great because if you live in a big city and you don't have access to grow your own food, supporting your local farmer who's maybe just outside of your community is, I think, the next best thing you can do for yourself because I'm a big believer that your health is your ultimate wealth. Cause yes. if you're not healthy and, and trying to, you know, thrive in the physical form that you're in um, money in the bank doesn't matter because you're not well. And um, you know, life ceases to be vital at that point. You're not, yeah. You, know. you have a vehicle that if you don't maintain it, it breaks down. So if you start it thinking does. about your body, like a car that you have to constantly, you know, change the oil in. I love the car analogy. I have asked people like, what kind of car do you think you are? And if whatever car you come up with, if you're not treating it like, you know, it's the Ferris Bueller's day off in the garage (laughs) and waxed and loved, then there's something wrong. And I think the wrongness is how much we've been removed away from the concept of food. Um, there's somebody that's local, um, that has a great idea and she's really fighting for different laws and such, but her idea is to bury people in a mushroom suit in a pie, pine or fur box and let the mushrooms decompose the body. And then you become one with earth and having these natural burial sites, which are against the law in the majority of the United States. Some states yeah. yeah. And, and I'm, the more I think about it, the more I'd like to put on a really fancy suit, get buried with <laughs> mushroom spores all over it, like it's polka dotted or something, and just kind of be between two trees and go there. There's a, there's a nonprofit in Seattle. I'm drawing a blank on their name. There's a nonprofit in Seattle that does a container recycling of the deceased body, and they use mushrooms and enzymes and then you get two Ain't Uncle Fred. <laughs> yeah, you get cute two cubic feet of soil that comes out of yourself decomp your, you know, instead of cremating. And what can happen, you can either get the soil back from the company after the process is done, or the soil is being donated to um, land preservation out on the peninsula, going into some old growth forest for restoration of the soil. So um, there are some companies in our state that are pushing that forward. So if, if she's here in Washington or there, I don't know their name, but I know they're functioning um, and it is in Seattle that's happening with that. Yeah. Well, if you come across it in the future, um, shoot me an email about it. Okay. I will. So um, we should probably let you get back to the farm and the pets and your Sunday weekend. Can you tell me, all the ways that you're deriving income and how people is there tours of the farm there is there mushroom kits is there tincture available is there mushrooms available if i'm a restaurant can i how do i hook up with you tell me how we can continue the love of mushroom conversation that's a great question we're we're in the middle of huge construction happening right now where we've teamed up with a, a wellness corporation where we will be 
in verti vertically integrated, uh, producing our own products in house for the the for brand performance. Basically, it's mm. the the whole mission of the company is boosting brain function and helping our brains not only in immunity but um, our cognition and and. There's all kinds of different avenues that we'll take. Uh, we're actually, you know, talking to other companies and probably going to be producing raw materials for their products as well, as well as our own products. So it's really exciting times right now. So you're going um, through well, a bit of a transitional period right now? It's a huge yeah. transition. Yeah. Okay. I won't and, send uh, hundreds of people down to the farm to bother you then. <laughs> yeah. But soon we're super excited for that in the future because that is our focus as well. We want to help. Uh, bring it to the people have a farm experience here for people that live in the city they can come out to the farm in a rural setting have a workshop learn more about it see the mushrooms firsthand so we're all about that we've always wanted to have uh, agritourism we live right on the bountiful byway which is a thurston county farm agritourism um, sponsored byway highway so it's really exciting times where we'll definitely Welcome everyone out to the farm once we're fully um, constructed and, and ready for that. But you could uh, email us at provisionsmushrooms at gmail.com and we'll, we'll try our best to get back to you. We do have tinctures and that's about it for right now as far as what we can provide for people. Mm -hmm. But we can also refer them to other places if they have questions and that, so... Awesome. And I would say in the next, I'm going to forecast out that this time next year, we'll be having availability for farm tours and people to come out to see mm -hmm. on us on how we've always taught, which is teaching people how to grow mushrooms for themselves every day, even if you have zero space. Mm -hmm. And then what we've accomplished and are working on, which is how do you scale? And if you want to scale, I mean, there's, there's lots to talk about scaling a business in this realm, but having people come out to the farm. So my, my projection is by this time next year, we'll have more of that business up and running and the website redesigned and the glamping sites will be finished. So people can stay the weekend. Just, you know, if you're traveling to come out to the farm, you want to, you want the experience and it's, it's great because we get to bring chefs out and, you know, highlight the local food that right. we get to feel blessed with having. And we like to share that with everybody that we can. So can that's, you, oh, sorry, yeah. go ahead. I, I'm, you just said glamping and I, <laughs> I would like you to explain that word to my wife if she ever listens to my podcast again. Oh, nice. <laughs> the importance of glamping and not camping. Oh, glamping. Yeah. Glamping is my style of going out in the nature. <laughs> um, glamorous camping. Glamorous camping. Um, <laughs> definitely, you know, having a few amenities, like you can plug in your iPhone, <laughs> you can still work remotely, even if you're having to, you know, adjust your life on your small getaway, some electricity, you know, and having bathroom needs met are always nice. So glamping is definitely something that, you know, people who come from the city, especially, you know, aren't just always set up to flop their tent out and make it comfortable for them. Wake up cranky the next day. I want my guests to wake up happy the next day, <laughs> comfortable. Yes. Yeah. Um, 
these guys aren't a sponsor, but I use them here on the island. Uh, pack, a shout out to Pack Westy. They are um, a company that takes the Euro vans and um, transitions them into electric vehicles. And then you rent it with the whole glamping amenities inside the van. So when you guys open up on day one, I want to have an invite and uh, I'm going to pack some of those vans with Bainbridge Islanders and come out to the farm and spend the weekend. Okay. Oh yeah. I would love that. I want pack Westies here on the farm. That seems like an amazing photo shoot to me. It's like, yeah, I've, been a West, I've had Westphalia since I was a kid. So oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so oh. I'm ready to have a bunch of electric campers here. That sounds rad. Well, I forget this lady's name, but I believe uh, her name's Nora and uh, she's a professional photographer and also um, kind of runs runs the shop so i'm i'm sure we can get her out there to take some photos of people glamping on the farm and yeah uh, your whole process that sounds so That'd awesome thank you it. well we'll do that for sure yeah. awesome well it's really nice to meet you christian and ria i wish you nothing but success this has been an interesting conversation and hopefully i can have another conversation with you with even more questions because you guys are very you all i'm not trying to say you guys anymore um <laughs> You guys are a wealth of knowledge and a great couple. And um, thank you for being on The Bystander. Thanks, Thanks so for having us for today. Having us. Yeah, appreciate All right. it. You guys can uh, get a link to the affiliate site Mudwater in the show notes. Uh, thanks again to Blue Canary Auto for sponsoring the show and Helpline House, where you can also become a member on Patreon for $20 and half of that money monthly goes to the Helpline. Um, once again, You've been listening to Provisions Mushroom Farm with Christian and Rhea. That's it. Be kind. You guys are great. Thank you. Thank you.